Welcome to Park Community Church of Norwood Park. We exist to know God and make him known on the northwest side of Chicago. Join us at Tav High School every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. We're glad you're listening in, and we hope that this message encourages you. Hey, Park, this is Pastor Dan here. I'm really grateful that you're able to join us for our Sunday broadcast. And we have been doing these from week to week to kind of make sure that as followers of Jesus, we have the opportunity to still come and worship our God and King Jesus uh, through some form of uh, community. And we're doing this as a broadcast. We know it's going out to uh, individual homes across the northwest side of the city. And our desire is that this would never be a replacement for the local church, but that it would stir our hunger to actually gather again together when we can after this quarantine season is over. I want to give a special shout out to uh, the Norwood Park crew who's joining us today, Brenton and Amber Smith and uh, the elders, deacons, the team over in uh, Norwood Park. So grateful that you're able to tune in with us today. It's a joy to be able to serve the northwest side of the city uh, with, with you all. If you got a Bible with you, why don't you open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be continuing in this series we've been doing through the Sermon on the Mount. In, in a nutshell, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we'd say, is the greatest sermon ever preached. Why? Be, because it came from Jesus. This is Jesus' sermon. Like, this is his ace in the hole. This is the thing that he is, uh, he is regularly teaching as he's going through Jerusalem in his day. It's like a prototype of the message that he was taking. And I, I think it's intentionally placed at the beginning of uh, the, the first book in the New Testament, almost as an interpretive lens for us to go back and uh, see the rest of the New Testament through the lens of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. So it is an incredibly important passage of Scripture for us to be talking about. And what you're going to see over and over again is, is that Jesus is talking about this thing called the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. This is, this is like God's reality breaking down, breaking through into our world, coming to bear on the way that we live in society today. I mean, the kingdom of heaven, as Jesus talks about it, or uh, he'll also call it the kingdom of God in other places. I mean, this, this is where there is uh, perfect peace, justice, righteousness, joy is all found in the kingdom of heaven. And what we're going to see in the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is saying it is breaking through now. The kingdom is expanding. And as he starts off this message, the Sermon on the Mount, he is going to list for us the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom of heaven. It's this section called the Beatitudes. And so right now we're going through one by one, looking at these characteristics of those in the kingdom of heaven. And really, here's what we're trying to do. Here's why we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount right now in this season. Uh, you know, there's a quote uh, that, uh, it's kind of a famous quote that says, if you want to build a ship, don't, don't gather people to, to buy wood, to prepare tools, to distribute jobs and organize work. Rather, if you really want to build a, a, a boat, teach people the yearning for the wide and boundless ocean. And that's what we're trying to do with the Sermon on the Mount. See, we, we want to have a yearning, a, a yearning for the kingdom of heaven, its beauty in all its grandeur to see what, what we are called to be as a people of God, to see it for, for the way that Jesus first taught about it. And that's what we see in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we hope that in this series, you're, 
affections are stirred for what the kingdom of heaven is, that you'd be saying, yes, that's what we want. That's what we want to be a part of. And so as we go through these, this first section of the Beatitudes, there's going to be a lot of places that step on our toes, frankly, make us either uncomfortable, they will lead us to repentance. Uh, and, and some of you may be watching this, and, and you're not a Christian. You're not a Christian yet, but you find yourself watching this message. I want to encourage you. We, we've got a ton of resources that we are currently working through. You'll find links to them at the end of this video uh, or on our website to to wrestle through some of the bigger questions that we're talking about right now. Uh, but if you're watching this and not a Christian, I want, I want you to know the Sermon on the Mount is, it, it doesn't mean it's not for you. What it does mean is that what you're actually looking for, peace and justice and satisfaction, it, it is not found in any other political system. It's not found in any other system or ism you could possibly find. It is found perfectly in the kingdom of heaven. This is life as it is meant to be lived. And so I want to encourage you, hang on with us through this series as we're talking about this, because what you will see is the kingdom of heaven is beautiful uh, and that you will want in. And we're going to talk many times about how we are brought into the kingdom of heaven. So stick with me. I also want to acknowledge that it is Mother's Day. Uh, and, you know, while we have you know, the range of emotions going from uh, excitement to uh, almost a, just a sorrow on Mother's Day. We're going to hit on a topic today that I think is going to hit pretty close to home. Uh, not just for women and, and mothers, but uh, it, it is going to be a uh, message today that, that will challenge us in maybe ways we don't see coming. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus puts forward a quality that almost none of us would find attractive, at least at face value. What he says in this passage, if you have a Bible open, Matthew chapter 5, look with me at verse 5. What we're going to see and study today is Jesus saying, verse 5, that blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And what we're going to talk about is what does it mean to be meek? What does it not mean to be meek? And how does that help us navigate in, in, in the, the world of chaos that we find ourselves in? It's going to raise some uncomfortable questions, ones we won't be able to fully finish right now. So I encourage you to tune in to some of our other videos or, or next week as we explore more of some of these questions. Uh, but why don't we go ahead and pray? And then we'll get started in looking at and understanding what it means to be meek. Father, we're just grateful that we have a chance to open your word today. We ask that you'd meet us, that you'd teach us, and that you'd not let us leave uh, this time unchanged by your word. We do love you. We thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me start the way that I have been starting the last couple of weeks. I want to read through uh, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1 says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And here's the one we're looking at today. Blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. I want to start with this. 
uh, that idea of inheriting the earth. We uh, don't have a ton of time to explore this, but essentially what he is going to say is the meek, whatever that means, the meek are the ones who are going to inherit the earth. This is like a euphemism that Jesus will use here to, to mean they are the ones who are in the kingdom of heaven. They are going to receive the inheritance of the kingdom. And so, I mean, Christians talk about this in a, in a bunch of different ways. We use the word salvation or to be a follower of Jesus, to be fully restored uh, and, and one day live in the fullness of the kingdom of heaven as God intends for it. That, that's what it means to inherit the earth. And so that is what is waiting for the meek. And again, in this first section, Jesus is listing out the qualities of those who are, already, who are in the kingdom of heaven. What, what are the people like who are in the kingdom of heaven? That's what he is answering the big question of the Sermon on the Mount. And what we see here in verse 5 is that one of the qualities is that uh, those in the kingdom are meek. They're meek. Now, I, I don't know if, if you're like me, but, but when I hear the word meek, th there's some baggage I have with that. Like, I, I associate a whole bunch of different words for, uh, with, with the idea of meekness. I think of someone who's timid or uh, maybe someone who is weak. You might be thinking of the, the Neville Longbottoms, the Toby Flendersons, the Jane Bennets of the world. I mean, the folks who are hardly assertive, right? They're quietly opinionated, but they don't put up much of a fight. And in general, they will go along with, uh, they'll go with the flow. And if you were to right now, as you pause this video and Google the word meek, the, the definition that will pop up on your screen looks like this. Uh, to be meek is to be quiet, gentle, easily imposed upon, and submissive. Right? In, in, in general, we think of the word meek if we even use the word at all, we, we think of someone who's a pushover, someone who gives up. And so when Jesus talks about meekness in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, it would be, it's not exactly a quality we value these days. And honestly, it'd be really easy for us to get the wrong idea of what Jesus is talking about because there are some big questions that pop up with meekness. Like, when should we be meek? Is it, I mean, Jesus makes a pretty general statement. The meek will inherit the earth. Does, does he mean meek only in certain situations or when, when the scenario calls for it? Should you have a meek response to injustice? I mean, just, just to call it out, but one of the questions we've got to ask is when we look at, when we look at the, when we look at the, the, the story of, Ahmad Arbery jogging in Georgia, getting uh, shot and killed for apparently no reason. Like, should we, should we look at that and tell his family that the, the, the Christian response is to be meek? Some of you on Mother's Day are thinking about things, uh, heart, harmful, hurtful things that were that said to you because of by your mom. Should your response be a meek response? Are we to be pushovers and just give in? Now, the big questions. We, we're not going to be able to get into all of those this morning. But, but this is where we need to be very careful students of the Bible. Because while we have some negative connotations about what this word means, uh, that's not always true of what the word and idea of meek meant. 
We want to know what Jesus meant it, what, how he meant it, and how he used the word, because it's only then that we can start to, to make the move to applying meekness to our lives. So here's the question. What does the rest of the Bible say about uh, meek or, or meekness? Well, a couple things uh, that are helpful to know. One, it, it's helpful to know that uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, this beatitude we're looking at is really the only one uh, that is not just a... a collection of different ideas from the scriptures that Jesus has put together. This is a direct quote, almost verbatim. If you look at the original language in the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, almost verbatim, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37, Psalm 37, verse 11. And uh, in fact, if you've got a Bible, why don't you open up to Psalm 37? We're going to be camping out there for a little bit. Psalm 37, it'll be helpful if you flip there. Uh, and we've got to ask the question, what is Psalm 37 about? Because if he's quoting it, there must be a reason why he's quoting Psalm 37. And from the 30,000-foot view, what you'll notice is that Psalm 37 is asking a very important question, one that all of us ask, right? Uh, it's asking the question, why, God, does it seem like those who are wicked, in other words, the people who are not following after you, not try to be faithful to you, why does it often seem like they are thriving? While those of us who are trying to honor you, to be respectful, to, to, to live the way you've called us to live, God, why does it seem like we go through seasons of hardship and suffering? I mean, we might be asking the, the, the question, why are they successful when we're not? Why, why do they have a job and I lost my job? Why can they now pay for their taxes to send their, their kids to the, the nicer school? And I, and I can't, right? There's all of these kind of modern questions we ask with this. In fact, Psalm 37 is a reversal of the classic question, not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? Right, and how do we make sense of that? Because right, when, when good things happen to bad people, that seems to violate the deepest sense of justice that we're actually longing for. And, and frankly, don't tell me that as a Christian you've never asked this question. In fact, you might be asking it right now. Why do we look at a why do we live in a world where it seems like people can get away with murder? Why do we read stories of uh, so often of powerful corporations taking advantage of those who have no resource or power to uh, put up any kind of meaningful fight? Now, all through Psalm thirty-seven. There's this comparison going on between the righteous person and the, the wicked person, the one who loves God, the one who doesn't, back and forth, back and forth. And it seems like the, the, the wicked person is thriving. And yet, the constant refrain of this psalm uh, is, is that it will be the righteous who are ultimately preserved. While, while at every turn, it might look like the wicked are thriving and, 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 and prosper, it's actually quite the opposite. The psalmist, the author of the psalm, repeatedly says, the wicked, no, the wicked will fade like grass and wither like the green herb. You will, uh, in just a little while, the wicked will be no more. He says, you will look to their house and you won't see them anymore. They will be gone. Right, the psalmist is saying there is a coming judgment on the wicked. There is a day uh, when their prosperity will end. And they will be no more. And then you get to verse 11, Psalm 37, verse 11, the part that Jesus quotes here in Matthew 5. That it is by no means the, the wicked who will inherit the earth, 
but the meek. And what did the meek do? Psalm 37. Because really, this is an encouragement, Psalm 37, to the meek on how you should live in a world where it seems like the, right, the, the wicked are prospering. How, what, what do you do? How do you respond in this kind of world? And you see it all over the place, especially in the first 10 verses. And just look at all the things that the psalmist says the, the, the meek ought to do when it seems like the wicked are prospering. He says this, verse 1, trust in the Lord. Delight in the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for him. Fret not before the Lord. And it, it all builds to this climactic moment that, that the meek can respond in this way, in trusting, delighting, committing themselves before the Lord, not because they're forced to, not because they have a passive or submissive personality. In fact, meekness has nothing to do with weakness whatsoever. Here's the climax of the psalm, verse 28. For the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. See, here's the misconception that to be meek is weak. What Psalm 37 is saying, no, the, the meek are not toothless. They're trusting. Let me say that again. The meek are not toothless. They are Trusting the meek means, or to be meek means you are trusting in a God who cares far more about injustice than you ever could. To be meek means you are trusting yourself to a God who promises that he will never forsake you. It means he won't give up on you, he won't abandon you, he won't reject his people. The meek are the ones who have a fixed confidence that God will provide even if they can't see how. See, they're not toothless. They're trusting. The difference between the meek and the, the wicked is not the, the, uh, how much power they have. The difference is who they're trusting in. Because the meek will entrust themselves having a fixed confidence that God is the one who's got them. And this is why in the Bible, the, the word meek is so closely associated with gentleness. Because the meek are actually liberated to be gentle, to respond in gentleness. The, the meek see and are convinced that there is a God who's got your back, right? The, the meek are the ones uh, who, who know that God sees, knows, and provides for what his people need, that he will not forsake them, so much so uh, that you no longer need to take up your sword in your relationships. You don't need to resort to anger or manipulation or even cruelty to get what you need. To be meek is to have been liberated from the slavery, the power hunger. You see, what Psalm 37 shows us is quite profound that the opposite of meek is not the proud or arrogant. The opposite of meek is not to be prideful or arrogant. Opposite of meek is to be equally convinced that you need to fight and win your own battles. I'm convinced that power is what makes the world go around and you need to do what you need to do in order to impose your will on others to get what you need. Now, got to wrap up here. I know most of us don't really see ourselves as power hungry. We don't see ourselves as power hungry, but I want to suggest to you that we may actually act as if we are more power starved than we ever realized. Let me give you a couple of examples. 
This power hunger shows up in all of our lives. I mean, for those of us who are parents, right? This, this, isn't this really what's behind the way we so often respond to our kids? I mean, especially in the quarantine when you're packed in sardine, packed like sardines into the home almost, almost all day, trying to get just one moment to yourself when you can finally respond to it. Email will take 30 seconds to send if you could just get those 30 seconds, but it's like your kids have, have um, devised a pact to destroy you, right? And as soon as you pick up your phone, they're about to go nuts. In fact, it might be happening right now while you're trying to watch this, this sur- surface, screaming, chaos, tears, all of it. And so what do you resort to? Is it your voice? Is it your voice? I mean, for some of you, I mean, you want to demonstrate how much more power and authority uh, that your, your kids should recognize that you have over them, right? And so you, you say something uh, a lot louder than you thought you could or louder than you know you should. In fact, if you had Thor's hammer, you'd probably use it. It's this, this power hunger coming out in us, trying to get our kids to do what we want them to do. You see this power hunger in our relationships, right? In, in, in the way that uh, some of us, and this has happened to me, it might, might have happened to you several times over the quarantine. Like, I have people who uh, send over suggestions to me of things, like really cool ideas of things that parks should be doing right now, people suggesting podcasts, books, articles, video clips, you know, the whole gamut of things that uh, will help lead well in, in this kind of season. And uh, when I get them, I usually say something like this, Oh, man, thank you so much for sending that over. Really helpful. I've actually been thinking about that, and here's a couple thoughts I have around it. I, and see, it, it sounds innocent, right? But at the end, that tag ending, me saying I've actually been thinking about that, a lot of times that's just a ploy to suggest to the other person that I'm already two steps ahead of you, even if it's not true. Like, even if it's not true, I'll, I'll say something like that. Why? Because I don't want someone to think that I'm behind the game. I th- th- this is still a power hunger move driving my interactions, my relationships. You might do this uh, in the way that you, you know, get out ahead of the game and, and already call out your faults so that no one else can point them out to you, just to let them know that you already know they exist and you're probably already working on them. There is this power hunger uh, that, 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 that stirs up inside of each one of us, and yet this power hunger, this, this, this hunger to be in control is the very thing the very thing that Jesus is saying, hey, look, the kingdom of heaven is not like that. Instead, the kingdom of heaven is filled with people who know they don't need the camera pointed at them. They don't need uh, to focus on getting their needs met through their means. And the meek, according to Psalm 37 and, and Matthew 5, These are the ones who will be preserved in the end. These are the ones who receive the inheritance of the kingdom. And this is exactly how we see Jesus living. Later on, you will see Jesus in the garden, knowing full well what awaits him in a Roman crucifixion, one of the most cruel forms of execution invented uh, by by humanity. Knowing that that's coming next, that and more, what does he say? If, if there's, Father, if there's any other way, let, let, let's do something else. 
yet not my will, but yours be done. See, in that moment, he's entrusting himself to the Father. You see it on the cross, too. When he's being ridiculed, beaten, judged, <laughs> and, and crucified by, by people, by the wicked. What does he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What's he doing? In that moment, he is entrusting himself. He is demonstrating a meekness that does not seek power over somebody else, but rather entrusting himself to the Father. And what's happening on the cross in that moment is that Jesus is taking on the full weight of all of our uh, starved, uh, our starvation for power. And the things we do because of that, he takes on all of our sin, is crucified, dies the death that you and I actually should have died. And yet he rose again from the dead. The story of the gospel tells us he rose again from the dead, proclaiming that he was victorious over any form of power hungry. He was, he, was, he was victorious over sin itself, victorious over death itself. And so now, as followers of Jesus, when we have faith in Jesus, when we say, uh, I, I, Lord, I, I pledge my allegiance to you and to you alone, we are united with Jesus, and his meekness becomes our meekness. See, we, we can be meek not because we, we go out and try really hard. We can be meek because Jesus was first perfectly meek for us. And now as a Christian, you see that you are empowered to, to go back into those same kinds of situations, even in the face of injustice, and say, God, I know that I cannot, I, I cannot fix this situation. But I entrust myself, I entrust what's going on right now into your hands because you are the one who will one day bring perfect justice. You can do it on the broad things. You can do it on the, 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 the small details. Again, when your kids are going nuts, you can say, God, to be meek is to say, God, I don't have patience right now. I want to bring the thunder in my home right now because it, it, it's gotten way, it's too far gone. And yet we can entrust ourselves to a God who promises to bring peace, to meet us in our chaos, and to bring us peace. Friends, to be meek is not not just the opposite of pride. It's not just the opposite of arrogance. It's not to be weak. You see, the meek are not toothless. The meek are trusting. And now we are sent out as his people in the kingdom of heaven to be meek. Let me close with this. If you've watched this today and just have questions about uh, what it means to be in the kingdom of heaven, because you know that you're not a Christian. I I want to share with you that the way to enter in the kingdom of heaven is not to first figure out how to be meek. It's to recognize that on your own, you could never earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. And yet God has provided a way for you, and that way is called faith. What it means to be brought into the kingdom of heaven is simply to have faith in Jesus, to look at the, the, the example of his meekness on the cross that the love that he has shown humanity on the cross in dying the death we should have died in our place for our sin and saying, I believe in what Jesus has done. I believe that he is Lord of the universe. 
to have faith is to have to pledge our allegiance to Jesus, King Jesus and him alone. And when you do that, you can have you you, you are brought into the kingdom of heaven. And God begins to to empower you to live and respond in meekness. And if you've got more questions about what it means to be a Christian uh, or, or would like uh, to, to talk more about being in the kingdom of heaven, let me encourage you. Here, here's my email on the bottom of the screen. You can, you can send me an email. We'll start talking this week. Love to have that conversation. Friends, for, for the rest of you, I want to thank you again for tuning in. And we'll see you next week as we continue in our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you so much for joining us for today's message. We love to see you join us in person. You can find more information at parkcommunity.church slash Norwood Park.